Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The following program is presented by the Nerdy Show Podcast Network. Geeky programming for all nerds across the multiverse. All Nerdy Show programming is made possible by A Comic Shop, Orlando's number one comic shop and nerd destination, and with the generous support of listeners like you. To learn how you can support this and other fine geek programming, visit nerdyshow.com. Spuds, this is Jerry Casali from Devo, and I just want to remind you that de-evolution is real, and now you're listening to the Nerdy Show. Welcome to Nerdy Show, a weekly podcast dedicated to every facet of nerddom, from comics and video games to science and technology. If it's geeky, we've got it covered. Hi, I'm Cap. Hi, I'm Mark with a C. And in this episode, well, we hope to have some fun, but we're, Mark and I are brought together for a very solemn reason, the passing of David Bowie. It's true. It's sort of a reunion of the, the gang that brought you, what was it, a four-hour exploration into <laughs> David Bowie's Singular album outside. I think it was like maybe eight hours, like an eight-hour exploration of that one record. We now, came out of that recording session different people. <laughs> yeah, with uh, ape men with metal parts, really. I was wearing the Minotaur head. Was... <laughs> <laughs> We're really getting ahead of ourselves. We're diving over the deep end immediately. Um, Mark and I, uh, if you're not familiar, are big David Bowie fans. And uh, we, we did one time uh, back when Mark had a show, The Real Congregation, on Nerdy Show, uh, we did an exploration of of our favorite David Bowie record for um, it was it was actually about three hours um, and from from start to finish introducing you to the concept and exploring all the narrative qualities of outside Bowie's uh, cyberpunk rock opera basically basically <laughs> I mean, I, I'm hearing you say it and I'm like I know he's trying to whittle that down into a bite sized statement but it's so wrong but how can you <laughs> how can you talk about it in bite size so at, at this point. We've had a little while to process this, but um, as I mentioned in last week's episode, it has been pretty painful personally to uh, to really deal with the uh, the loss of David Bowie. I'm an icon for so many reasons and a personal hero for so many reasons uh, to both of us. And so so today we're just gonna we're gonna sit around. We're gonna we're gonna nerd out about one of the nerdiest musicians in rock and roll history. One of the, well, he has a nerdy catalog and a lot of nerdy properties, but I think he's the least nerdy guy that ever made him. You yeah. Know, one, of, one of the the consummate gentlemen. I mean, do you really see David Bowie sitting around rolling a 20-sided die? No, no. But no. Um, what comes out of him ends up being incredibly nerdy properties, uh, often, unless True. he's pretending to be a rock star around the, the Let's Dance era, where it's sort of painted on, look, this is what I would look like if I were a rock star, but I'm not really a rock star, though I'm filling stadiums, but I'm just pretending. <laughs> well, I mean... It's so inscrutable. If, if you look at his, his self-titled uh, debut in the late 60s, you know, with, with, with 
songs like the Gravedigger and Oh please uh, Mr. Gravedigger, yeah. Yeah, and um I don't Laughing Gnome wasn't actually on the record, was it? It was I think that was a an offshoot single. The bulk of that record was directed by his manager at the time, who I want to say was Ken Pitt. And Ken Pitt came from you know, he had been the manager for like Judy Garland and stuff. So he's throwing young David in <laughs> head first into music hall. And that's cool because David really wanted to write musicals. Yeah. That was his uh what is one of his initial dreams was. I mean, he first really wanted to be Little Richard, and then more realistically, like, well, I like all of the aspects of theater. So he he dove head first into writing musicals. So he's singing stuff like When I Live My Dream. Yeah. Uh, when I'm five, you know, if you haven't he- heard the record that came before Space Oddity, um, it's not probably where you should start. It's, but, but I, I bring it up for the for the reason of David Bowie was a strange and charming young man with fanciful thoughts, and had he lived a little bit later, maybe he would have rolled a D twenty. But I, I can't <laughs> say. <laughs> Oh, I think I'll give this a try. <laughs> that was my terrible Bowie impression. Then I myself can be a laughing gnome. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been so full circle. And, and he was always coming full circle. Um, I would uh, like to, to state, if you've, never, if you've never really traversed the waters of Bowie and say in the last couple of weeks you're just going, listen, uh, I know he was, had a huge impact on folks, so let me check out a compilation. Uh, you're... You're not getting the full picture, and me and Cap both being huge fans, I don't think either of us are even close to the full picture either. Mm. There's so It's such a deep well. There's so many um, variations on David Bowie, the artist, that you can never possibly understand each one of them because they've all, you could write a book on each character in each year and how it was a product of its environment. And I, I'm going to go out on a limb here. And say something that people dance around a bit. They never come right out and directly draw the correlation to. But when when David was very young, when he was just young David Jones, he idolized his half-brother Terry. His half-brother Terry was his hero. And Terry protected him around town, you know, uh, showed him what was what. They would go to nightclubs together. And as Terry aged... Terry, like many of the people in David Bowie's family, had a predilection towards schizophrenia and violent outbursts and multiple personalities. I didn't know this. Uh, the entire mother's side had huh. it, but it especially presented in Terry. Bowie would go on to write songs like All the Mad Men about him, and as well, uh, probably most famously, the song Jump, They Say, after Terry oh, passed away. Wow. But he was always standing on the edge of madness, watching it, knowing it was in him, and I believe that what people have referred to about his chameleon-like tendencies, which it's actually the inverse of, he changed the world around him, like <laughs> an inside-out chameleon, I believe that the shifting of the personalities and constant reinventions were his way of controlling the multiple personality aspect that was in his DNA. It was ingrained inside of him. He knew that it was there. It could come at any time. And I believe that the characters were his way of taking control of it. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I was completely unfamiliar with, with that aspect of his personal life. When people bring it up in biographies, they, they kind of stop at, and Terry was schizophrenic, and so was a lot of his mom's side of the family. Hmm. And they never jump into making this grandiose statement that I, I do feel a little bad about making because I never shared a room with David Bowie. I never spoke to him. I never had really close contact. I'm 
making, I, I'm drawing answers together from all the things that I've learned about a man who's mysterious by design. Right. Well, I mean, there's there's much to be said about that observation. For example, Salvador Dali was the second child his parents had named Salvador Dali. I had no idea about that. You're blowing my mind right now. <laughs> the, I can't believe that's real. <laughs> there was there was another kid named Salvador Dali, and he died, and so they named their next kid that. And and he but that that kid lived, I I believe. I mean, I, it's been a while since I've gone down this particular rabbit hole, but I believe he lived several years. So there were photos of Salvador Dali the first, and uh, the Salvador Dali we we know and love today was in many ways affected by living in the shadow of a dead person with his name. I can see being being Salvador Dali now. Right. Before that, I was like, oh, just crazy guy, you know, a <laughs> little eccentric, uh, made some great art, um, did some really interesting stuff with Alice Cooper. But uh, now it almost makes more sense than it ever could have. <laughs> <laughs> you have to go on and be double great for the both of us. It's literally like Walk Hard in action. <laughs> have, you, have you seen the film Walk Hard? I, I'm familiar with the premise. I have not seen it. I know it's very good. The uh, the main character, Dewey Cox, accidentally slices his brother in half who's uh, talented at everything. And as he's laying there in two halves, bleeding to death, he's like, Dewey, you've got to be double great for both yeah. of us. And that haunts him his entire life. And, of course, his brother comes back to visit him occasionally and going like, hey, man, it sucks being dead. Prolong your life. Stop doing drugs. I've been trying to jerk off with a ghost hand. Nothing doing. Um <laughs> And so I can imagine if that's what you got going on mentally, Salvador Dali is going to come up with some weird art. Yeah. That makes sense. It's a, it's a, it's a very intense start to a life, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. So, a lot of us just play with blocks. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, David Bowie, um, I, what you were saying uh, about how challenging it is to, to get, uh, to, to find the right starting point, like, say, for, for you as an individual listening to this, if you're not familiar with your favorite era of David Bowie or anything. I encountered this firsthand in a lot of ways because I, I, as you may or may not know, I, I write for Consequence of Sound in addition to doing Nerdy Show, which is a, it's a music and film website. And um, there's a series that they do called N10 Songs. And because Bowie had a record out, we were already creating a ton of David Bowie-related articles prior to his death. Um, and so I, I was really like further entrenched in all my Bowie... I don't know, knowledge, et cetera, leading up to the, his inevitable demise. It was just really catastrophic for a lot of reasons. But in doing this in 10 songs things where you have to take, compress a massive discography into 10 tracks. And um, in some cases, this has been the project of a single person. But in this case, it was myself and two other staff writers who I didn't know. Oh, wow. Um, and it was hard. And how wacky would it have been if you, because, uh, trying not to get ahead of things here, you have a predilection towards some of the the lesser parts of catalog uh, of Bowie's catalog right. at large. I mean, maybe not the most loved past. Wouldn't it have been wacky if the two people you didn't know also were really big <laughs> fans of that era? And you guys were just like, look, start with Tin Machine 2. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really, it, it would have been. I would have been like, wow, okay, like let's, this is unprecedented synergy here. Let's roll with this. Uh, and, we had, you know, we sorted it out, and it's a list that I can definitely live with, but it's extremely imperfect for a lot of reasons, starting with you cannot <laughs> exhibit all of Bowie in 10 songs. The reason that there are so many compilations on the market is because you can't do it. Mm. He can't do it. His label can't do it. It cannot be done. 
it would be one thing if he had a li- somewhat of a linear sound throughout his career. You could live without a couple of hits being on something. I think the most successful compilation that that's made an attempt has been the most recent one. Yeah, nothing has changed. It's done a fantastic job because it starts um, right around the beginning of his um, most recent record, Black Star, and works its way backwards, which actually somehow makes the album be a little bit more futuristic because the record that we'd lived with uh, prior to Black Star called The Next Day, when Bowie just came out of this silent retirement phase, just dropped this record uh, out of the, the clear, blue sc- clear blue sky, it was actually a pretty normal record. In a lot of ways, it was kind of generic rock band instrumentation by and large. So you get halfway through Nothing Has Changed, and you're going, this is the futuristic stuff. <laughs> so... Yeah, you go backwards and it starts sounding weirder and weirder and weirder. Yeah, and and in in a lot of ways, it does actually. It ends with stuff that actually predates his self titled record back when it was like uh, David Jones and the King Bees, or uh, maybe that wasn't the full title that that. No, group, that like, that was the King Bees. Yeah, like there's and David Jones and the Lower Third, and the I Lower Third, yeah, one. and then also the King Bees was another act of his, and I I, I, I don't did Manish Boys. Yeah, so it goes. It really covers the full gamut, though it does leave out his. Uh, Proto grunge days and Tin Machine that's missing and Suffragette City. Okay, look, you you can have your Tin. I know you love Tin Machine, right? This <laughs> this offshoot uh, band that Bowie did in the late eighties, early nineties. He just wanted to be in a rock band again, and cool. I certainly have taken that own diversion myself in my career. I get it, but if I got to choose between Tin Machine songs missing from a Bowie retrospective or Suffragette City. <laughs> Like one of probably the top 20 most overplayed classic rock songs of all time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to lean towards Suffragette City, even though I'm deathly sick of it. Uh, anyway, so regardless of those omissions, it is actually really cool. And and when it, as listening to it, this this album that starts in the present and travels back in time, it gets you ready for some of the earlier stuff. And they chose his best earlier work, which, like I said earlier, I kind of wouldn't advise anybody go directly to, you know, David Bowie by David Bowie because it's that's a deep end that's very different from everything else he did um but what it takes from that era fits and feels right and by the time you've got to that point listening to the the record in order the three disc set particularly in order because there's a dump a bunch of different versions if you're going to get one get the three disc set absolutely um you're man it, it feels right it feels great yeah, it's one of the best-paced compilations, but they've never gotten it right. They've tried to break it up into, okay, well, this disc just covers the 70s, but it's in this really um, strange order. Or they'll try to go from the beginning, and to them the beginning is 1969 with Space Oddity, uh, to about what they consider the end, which is around loving the alien. A lot of compilations just don't really count anything past Never Let Me Down in 1987, which in a lot of ways for fans and I know for sure for Bowie was a bit of a an artistic, I wouldn't say nadir, but nobody was thrilled. Bowie Bowie doesn't like Never Let Me Down. Um, I would hate to speak for him, but everything I've seen on record says he's not thrilled with it. I, I and, mean, but he knows there's good stuff there, just like I do when I yeah, listen to it. Yeah, I mean, in, in the most recent thing I saw from him relating to it was basically him saying, there were a lot of good songs there. I screwed up. That record should have been better. It would be awesome to do it again. So let me ask, since we, we've talked about kind of a starting point, and it, we went, okay, these three CDs, <laughs> yeah. have we ever talked in public about our starting points? I don't know that we have. 
Um, and if we have, it's been a lot of under the wa- water under the bridge and no one could find it. So I, I think this is the proper time. Kevin. All right. How, you go first, man. Okay. Um, my first exposure to David Bowie was no doubt um, me listening to the classic rock station, hearing Space Oddity, hearing Suffragette City, um, and liking uh, Space Oddity especially. Like when you hear that song for the first time, it, it, it takes you, you know, you're like, sure. wow, I've never heard anything like this. This is crazy. Um, and, but really identifying who David Bowie was as a person and as a, a visual entity started um, with Labyrinth probably. Um, but it was, it was nothing that I was like sat down and shown or anything. I was in the mall with my grandmother and we were walking past the Suncoast motion pictures. And as you might recall, they used to have uh, columns of televisions out in the, the front of their, their store displays. It's all coming back to me. Yeah. Um, and so one day there was labyrinth on there. And I, I mean, I was familiar with Jim Henson and the Muppets to at least some degree, but I'd never seen anything like this before with this like live action, uh, puppet weirdness. I believe it was in the the bog of eternal sense scene, and I kind of hung out in front of the store watching it. And then, uh, as I mean, a young kid, um, made my first like conscious interaction with the store employee of another thing to be like, "Whoa, what is this?" Like going into the <laughs> store and being like, "What is this?" And um, and from there, so just through you know, the shop window, Bowie blew your mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He wasn't necessarily doing much. It was just through a window in a stack of televisions. Not only was Bowie successful as an actor and, and a magnetic personality, but Suncoast was successful with their promotional things because they got you in the store. Well, it, Suncoast Motion Picture Company and Sam Goody were very big for me. That was my, my first and most beloved job, I think, oh, was, yeah. was working for them. Um, it's the, there's, a, there's a true beauty to working in a... Um, music and video retail store that I, uh, uh, you know, is, is, is something that people will never experience again, probably. Um, it, it is a sad thing when I think about it. That's making me even sadder. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Cap, what have you done here? Um, so from there, I, I, I eventually got the Labyrinth soundtrack, and the first record I tracked down was Space Oddity, the RYKO uh, edition, which is still actually the best version it's of... It's got, what, uh, Don't Sit Down on it? Uh, the, the track that was deleted? Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, um, in memory of a free festival, parts one and two, the um, single version, yeah. yeah. Um, so there's some. That's the cover isn't awesome, but the track listing, like with the bonus tracks, that's a, a really good addition of that record. Um, and I remember I, I was in. I got it at um, Borders, which is a, another deceased a um, place that I worked. <laughs> and uh, the Republicans won. Now all the borders are totally closed. What do the Republicans have to do with the? the it board? was a joke about immigration. Okay. Oh, I get it. I get it. <laughs> Come on. That was pretty it. good, right? It was pretty good. Um, man. Okay. So, <laughs> um, uh, a fun fact about this borders, it was a borders in Fort Lauderdale um, along the intercoastal waterway. No, near the intercoastal waterway, um, but along a, a body of water. It's actually a borders facing a, a beautiful body of water. And it was weirdly, um, are you familiar with the folk singer Melanie? Oh, of course. Yeah, I covered her song Brand New Key on uh, one of my records. Man, that's awesome. I actually don't... Man, yes. Okay. Yes, so, I'm, I'm very familiar with she, Melanie Safka. She's great. Um, she recorded, like, probably the last record she released to date was a live record recorded at that Borders while I was there by accident as a kid. Wacky. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's the wacky Borders story about that Borders, where I bought Space Oddity, and my dad was like... <sighs> You sure you want to buy this? This guy's pretty weird. 
It's sort of like when the kid brings home the black light, you know that child is no longer your own. They hang the sublime poster and you're like, crap, it's done, man. My inf- Hopefully I gave enough positive influence in their life because they're on their own for now. Yeah, my dad was known for being oversensitive. I couldn't watch Full House because he didn't want me to have that kind of sass the Tanner kids had. Um, <laughs> you're making that up. I'm There's not, no way that's true. I am not. I wish I was. Um, I oh, could- wow. I, I only watched Simpsons when he wasn't around because that was forbidden material. A bit more understandable than Full House, but um, you know when when all those kids and all the commercials are talking back to their parents, he was like, "I ain't having that." Nope, not influencing my kids. So Full House was a was a fucking taboo. My mind is continuously blown in this episode <laughs> as we learn about the origins of Cap. <laughs> I did watch it though when he wasn't watching. <laughs> when you finally watched some episodes of Full House, were you like, seriously, Dad, you need to fucking lighten up? <laughs> no, no, I don't think I ever had a frank did, conversation. Like did did you maybe like sneak in a, you got it, dude, and then just, <laughs> you know, knowing he wouldn't get it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I wish I was that clever back then. Um, which for at amusing myself anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so it started with Space Oddity and uh, and the Labyrinth soundtrack. And uh, I can't remember what came next exactly. I remember I got Earthling, um, which is uh, David Bowie's like uh, industrial jungle jungle like techno record from the mid '90s. I was not ready for it. It was not the David Bowie I was expecting. I didn't know mm-hmm. that such a David Bowie existed. Um, so it took me a while to get that, but actually what I was kind of getting to back minutes and minutes ago when I was talking about the, the intense songs thing is that it, it was very plainly clear that not many people like all of David Bowie. And so what you, if, if you, but there's enough David Bowie, there's probably a David Bowie for you. So if you have never gotten into him, it's important to look at the full like try different different bowies because there's at least going to be a couple albums that you will like and and that's why the the nothing has changed thing is really uh such such a great suggestion Mm. uh if i may pat both of ourselves on the back here (laughs) because you're going to get probably the most palatable taste of all of those in nothing has changed when i first looked at the track list i went really from like the 2000s we're getting everyone says hi why and then when i heard it in uh in order in the order that he had designed, it made perfect sense. I went, no, that actually really does sum this up, and it's a little tongue-in-cheek at the same time, but this is a really heavy theme. Um, Everyone Says Hi being a tune that sounds very lighthearted and poppy, but is ultimately about um, being lonely at a rest home and no one coming to visit you. So, And that was really his power. He could take the darkest of subjects and make you feel better about them, not as alone, and like he understood them on a level you never ever would. I've actually, I, I was wondering about Nothing Has Changed and wondering if Bowie was aware of his dire circumstances when he completed it. And I think production of that probably ended just shy of that alleged like 18 month battle with cancer that he had. So I'm, I'm not really sure how it, how it falls, but he must have known he was nearing wrapping things up as, as, I don't know, as much later day activity as people have reported Tony Visconti saying that he like had he was working on some demos and Brian Eno saying that he was prepared to revisit outside and all this other stuff that it's hard to tell because especially with Tony Visconti, uh, Bowie's longtime producer, probably doing more than people think um, he uh, he's been his mouthpiece for a number of years. 
but he's also willing to lend his voice to... Okay, so remember back in, say, Sam Goody times, you'd walk up to the DVD section and you'd go, oh, The Cure, in review, what's this? And you'd pick it up and you'd look at the DVD and if you looked in the the fine print, it would say, this DVD contains no Cure music, it's a bunch of no-names talking about The Cure, really save your money, but... And every band had one of these. That sounds terrible. <laughs> Tony Visconti is on these things, man. Like if oh, man. A&E calls him going like, we're going to do a 45-minute special on Bowie. We don't have any name people. Can you come along? Tony's there, like, you know, with his freaking Bowie mouthpiece cape on. So it's either he was a trusted spokesperson or he didn't know when the fuck to shut up and Bowie couldn't control it. <laughs> so I always feel like, Tony's got to be taken with a grain of salt. It's not that I have any reason to distrust him, but here's Bowie about to release Black Star. He's going to get all of these accolades. He doesn't quite know that the end is near because, um, in case you haven't delved into the research that Cap and I probably fervently did at, to our the detriment of our own sanity, mm. Bowie was not well when he recorded Black Star. He had very little hair. Uh, was lacking eyebrows, but he went into a full remission in the middle of that 18 months and looked like he was going to be okay. And that's where he started having ideas and reportedly mentioned the idea of touring, reportedly mentioned the idea of having five more songs, reportedly talked to Eno about finishing outside. It may not have been as um, dying man rushing to finish all these products as a new lease on life, but when people turn at the end, they really turn, and they turn quick. Mm-hmm. And that's how it appears that it went down, if Visconti's words are to be trusted. Something I should add in here, since we're talking about the actual like reality of, of Bowie dying, was that, you know, like I said, it was it was really hard for me, and I was processing it much like you would process the death of somebody you know, as um, Bowie deeply affected my life. Um, in an effort to try to process this within 24 hours of him having died, I wrote a piece on Consequence of Sound uh, called David Bowie Lives. And um, uh, you should probably check that out because I'm probably going to do more service to my feelings on on him and his death there than, uh, than I probably will today, only because it's been such a tumultuous time and I've done so much ruminating on it that I'm, I'm somewhat of a different person now <laughs> than I was then in a lot of ways. But, I mean, I... It's an article. I think it it sums up what I was feeling then and still to this day, because I'm still in a little bit of denial about the whole thing. I would like to upvote Reddit style what Cap just said. It actually is a fantastic article. And had I not known the the person that had written it, I would still feel that it was a fantastic article. And I think it's one of the few that really summed up, uh, if I may paraphrase um, (laughs) my own and project my own feelings on it, it's that none of us next to none of us that are mourning and as you've unless you've been hiding in a hobbit hole you know that the world is still mourning um everybody is mourning everyone has some sort of connection to david bowie we didn't have any connection to david jones and he gave us the art and the art is the what we have the relationship with and it's those few flashes of david jones and the the calm a gentleman uh, that was behind it this whole time, this real individual, those glimpses when he would smile or that twinkle in his eye made you feel like there was a human being behind this larger-than-life thing. 
but we couldn't know him. We could only know Bowie, and Bowie can live forever. Yeah. Um, he's. I'm choosing to look at it as Bowie, for 10 years, did not make any records. Between reality and the next day, there were no albums. We're entering a period where Bowie's not making albums. I'm in the denial phase as well. <laughs> I know the reality of the situation. I am, I'm right there with it, but... Um, I could uh, go on at length about how his records made me not feel so alone, uh, but as I've as I will state in in much more detail later on, there are people far more qualified to to make those types of statements than myself. But I also can say that as a, a person who lived in a very large city in San Diego and was sort of transplanted to a very small town with no stoplights and the pop culture shock. What that that sort of uh, was timed to me really digging into David Bowie, and I felt a bit like an alien. So this is this is the Mark's first Bowie. Yeah, story. I was sliding Good. into that. I'm glad I was going to ask. <laughs> um, yeah, I I felt alienated because they're they're all playing music I don't understand. They're eating food I don't understand. They're listening to radio stations with things that I've never heard, but they all know. I it, it was as close as I'll ever be to feeling like an alien, and the first. Now, Bowie had always been around when I was watching MTV, and actually, true story, because he was so ever-present on MTV at the exact same time as Billy Idol, it, when I hadn't caught the names, Bowie at the time was promoting Let's Dance. This is when I was around five, yeah. and he's got the shock of blonde hair. I mean, really blonde hair, and so does Billy Idol. And people would talk about Bowie saying he didn't always look like that, so I'd catch a glimpse of Billy Idol at some other point, and I went, oh, that must be what else he did. So I had Billy Idol and David Bowie confused when I was very, very, very young. It wasn't until I heard um, a tape of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, because I'd heard compilations prior, and I went, oh, he has very good songs. But it was all out of context, you know? I had no idea where any of this stuff fell on a map or why he was, some of these songs were soul, why, why some of these songs were funk, and some of these songs didn't have words. None of those things made sense to me. Ziggy Stardust... Here was me getting this tape landing in my lap about an alien coming to warn you, and I felt like an alien where I lived. It just so happens, right as I was really absorbing that, Outside came out. And mm. I found out about Outside because just for a, a short, like, two-week period, MTV got really cool and threw the <laughs> heart's filthy lesson into afternoon rotation. The all-important kids just got out of school period of time. I can't overstate the importance of this. And it just so happens that I'd gotten very good grades and my mom was going to reward me by buying a record of my choice. And my choice was Get Me Outside, that new David Bowie record. And she looked at me like I had three heads. Like, it's 1995 and you want a David Bowie record as <laughs> a reward? And that sent me down the path. It was so different from anything I'd heard from him or any musician. I'd never heard narration done the way that it is. I'd never heard that broken up, deconstructed story. I'd never seen anybody not want me to know the ending or know <laughs> if I was at the beginning or the end. I'd never seen anyone take my money and say, I like, look me in the eye and all but say, I am screwing you. <laughs> but they weren't. They had the art they wanted to make. It just didn't jive with what I understood as a beginning, middle and end. I had to sit and try to piece that thing together. 
And he didn't put out another record three weeks later or a year later. He didn't put out another record for two and a half years. I had two and a half years of no new Bowie to try to understand outside. It's a start. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I had Ziggy Stardust and outside, and I went, how did these oh, two connect? So then I went piecemeal, just grabbing anything. Because, uh, you know, the internet wasn't as easy for me to access in this small town as it might have been for people in larger towns or really the average person at all. Hmm. So I'm checking records out from the library, trying to understand it. But then I get one called Starting Point, where I realize this is a compilation of those early singles that you had talked about with things like Love You Till Tuesday and oh The God. Laughing No. I'm like, like, how does this have anything to do with Ziggy Stardust I've, or Outside? I've never heard of Starting Point. That's crazy. It was a budget compilation in the U.S. where Darum was trying to make more and more money off of those, oh, those few Bowie tapes they owned. <laughs> So that really threw a monkey wrench into things, and but it was luckily in like right at the tail end of that Ryko reissue program, but it hadn't done terribly well on cassette. Um, the CDs were being snapped up by audiophiles, but those cassettes, people were pretty much checking out of tapes at right. the time. So luckily in this small town, which its lifeblood was a truck stop, truly, the lifeblood was this truck stop, and a lot of tapes got sold at that truck stop. So all the cutout versions of the Ryko cassettes, the Ryko disc versions of the Bowie reissue program, I could get those for $4.99. Man, nice. But the real, the real Genesis, like I was getting ones that had a, a big hit on it in the US. Like, uh, you know, Gene Genie was sizable here. So I got a lot insane. Mm. Um, Hunky Dory I got on tape because it had changes. That's a very big hit. Yep. There was this junk store I used to go to that just had vinyl as far as the eye could see. Nobody wanted vinyl that year. I mean, <laughs> right, right. we all know that vinyl died for a very long time. I loved vinyl. I never gave up the torch for it. And if I walked for 40 minutes, I could get to this place and all the records were a dollar. You just had to deal with the fact that there were 20,000 of them in a stack and that you could probably die looking through them. And the first one in the stack one day was Heroes. Mm. And Heroes was the one that connected them both. Because side one, I had, oh, this sounds kind of futuristic. It's kind of got that alien motif that I don't fit in, isolationism. But then you had the soundscapes on side two. And that sounded a lot like the background music for the narration of Outside. Yeah, I went, here we are. <laughs> I've found it. It's been like a puzzle I've been trying to put together ever since I was transplanted into a town I had no uh, understanding of. That's my my story of discovering Bowie. That's great, man. That like it really. I mean, it, under those circumstances, it really did become a puzzle. Because I mean, I I think for probably for any of us that have come into Bowie in the middle of his career, it's always been a bit of a puzzle. But that that really <laughs> that is a legit puzzle in in so many for so many different reasons, especially because you could get those cassettes so inexpensively, and and put together the different thing. Be like, wow, how like. The pieces were more accessible. Mm -hmm. Like for for me, it took me a while to get, um, to get it all together. I sometimes, for better or for worse, I have kind of a an action figure collect them all mentality about a discography. If I like something enough, I want to at least examine the narrative of that artist's career from oh, start I'm to finish. I'm right there with you. 
but the nearest record store to me was an hour and a half away. Yeah. No, I, I'm, so, I'm, 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 yeah, I just mean kind of in, in general, like, so oh, I've more than made up yeah. for it now. You've seen my wall. <laughs> <Yes>. Oh, records. <laughs> I definitely got a, a hint of the narrative now. Yeah. But it's like, so, so I'm inclined to always do this, even like, even if, even when encountering, um, uh, earthling and thinking, Oh shit, maybe, maybe I don't like David Bowie as much as I thought <laughs> I do. <laughs> you know, like, cause, but, at some point after that, I went back, and I can't remember what came after that, but it started. Uh, it started hours. to make more sense. I mean, I meant for for me oh, in buying in buying the record. Say, I'm 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 a know it all. I can answer that. No, I, I I can tell you where I was and when I was when I bought ours. I mean, not it's the one of the least remarkable David Bowie records of all time. But. And I hate agreeing with that because you know me, I always want to stick up for the underdog. I always want to go, no, it's just misunderstood. But really, ours is. Uh, kind of bleak it's it doesn't really uh doesn't really grab me i don't feel any of the any of the instrumentation but i know again there's good material there yeah there's there's has many redeeming qualities in in the canon of david bowie it's just doesn't measure up to all the like extremely amazing albums that he has anyway yeah but but i purchased it from the sam goody uh slash suncoast that i would later be an employee of and got that that uh lenticular hologram first edition <laughs> version because it was it was a weird situation it was it was an actual joint store it was both sam goody and suncoast no i remember those they were they were actually pretty common really they were i I didn't know i didn't realize that it's the only one i've ever seen not really common but sort of like you know that combination pizza huts and other restaurants exist right but you may not see a pizza hut and taco bell together every hundred miles but you're not alone okay uh incidentally um there was a training video filmed in that store in whichever part of the 1980s it still would have been applicable to have CDs in those bizarre rectangular cardboard packages yeah the long boxes that were the least eco-friendly thing possibly ever produced by the uh uh the music industry save for eight tracks which were just going to become the <laughs> Pac-Mans or not the Pac-Mans the ETs of landfills <laughs> everywhere i mean i love all media you know that and i'm just i can't make any excuses for eight track yeah i'm sorry man but so that training video, if anybody has a copy of it, please contact me. Cap at nerdyshow.com. Just going to put that out there. I've looked everywhere. It seemingly doesn't exist anymore. But it's a piece of my history, and I would like to see it again. So really, that visit to the mall that day, kind of, it, it didn't just change your life as far as enjoying Bowie or discovering Bowie. It really changed your life altogether. Like you were, you had your eye on that place for employment. Like that would be kind of a dream job for entry level. The um the one where I saw Labyrinth wasn't the same one that I oh, ended up okay. working at later. But I very quickly in life became a mall rat. I I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Was like kind of an every other weekend schedule with uh, with my two grandmothers. And one lived in one part of town, one lived in the other part of town. But I would always inevitably end up at a mall with them. And so I was constantly like haunting the media stores, be it Walden Books or Sam Goody or Suncoast and, and so on. And, uh, that's yeah i'm i'm I fairly obsessed with shopping I th- malls i thought that that was the one that <laughs> like you came back to right. work at that very one and no. like the one that sh- that started the bowie obsession it's the one that that definitely i mean this the one that started it um is yeah uh no but um the one that sustained it was the one that i that i did end up working at for many years you know also on the nerdy show network to get completely off track here but still somehow on track on on the nerdy show network we've got this radio station called nerdy fm and the reach of david bowie is even felt in a lot of the artists that we play and if it's okay with you i'd like to drop in a track for us to share with the listeners that we play quite often on the station by thundering asteroids they're from portland and they've got a track called i've got a thing for the goblin king so i think this would only be the right time to play it yeah highly appropriate let's do it
have no power over me. A one, two, three, I got a thing. That was Thundering Asteroids with I've Got a Thing for the Goblin King. Thundering Asteroids are a really cool nerd punk band from the Pacific Northwest, and I highly recommend that you check them out. I'm sure that if you Google Thundering Asteroids with an exclamation point, it'll put <laughs> you right where you need to be. But I also know they've got a pretty accessible Bandcamp site, and uh, there's a lot of nerd music out there, but they are quality, quality, quality nerd music. And of course, we'll link to that on this episode's page, along with every other um, article, etc. thing that we've mentioned. Here. Caps really got his work cut out for him to build the, to build this page. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and drop in a whole bunch of stuff right here oh that he's got a link to. Uh, the Tina Turner, David Bowie, Pepsi commercial where mm. they sang the song tonight. Uh, let's see. Uh, the Mick Jagger, David Bowie, Dancing in the Street video that was made in 24 hours. Uh, as well as they recorded the track within 24 hours. You're going to have to link to that now. What else can I mention here? Oh, oh let me mention some stuff I'm looking for. Apparently, there's um, somewhere in the vault an entire film of the 1974 Diamond Dogs Hunger City tour. No. But it was never, uh, I mean, it's in his archives, but... But it exists, Mark. I didn't even know it existed. Well, haven't you seen those film clips that are clearly from the middle of the show? Um, he's up in the rafters, or he's stuck on the thing with the phone. There is There are clips, and they're all from the dead center of the show. Now, if these were filmed by news crews, they would only be allowed the first three songs, and then they'd have to skedaddle to go get it on the air. Mm -hmm. This means that a real... Pro Camera was filming in the middle of the show for Sweet Thing and Space Oddity. I don't know, man. That's crazy. I mean... I, so I, now that I've mentioned it, you have to link to it. Get me that video, Cap. Uh, wow. Okay. Um, I mean, I, I went to the, the David Bowie Is exhibit when it was in Chicago, and they showed all kinds of amazing stuff from the Diamond Dog tour. They showed uh, Bowie's sketches for what he wanted the stage to be designed as. He showed uh, storyboards for the film he wanted to make of, of Hunger City and all that. And I don't recall seeing any such clips. But uh, they are in some documentaries, like things like when MTV would do their rockumentaries. I mean, it exists. I'm not imagining this. Right. They always tell the story of um, how he got, uh, he would be up in the cherry picker singing Space Oddity into a telephone. But then he would get stuck, and it happened more than once. And they always show this little clip they've got of him in the chair looking very despondent. But it's unclear if it's from that show. Either way, it was definitely a decision that there was some footage, but they weren't going to do anything further with it. And Interesting. I'd be interested to know who's the caretaker of all of the footage now. Because I know it wouldn't be outrageous to imagine that Tony Visconti is sort of the gatekeeper uh, being so close to Bowie, knowing what he liked and what he didn't like as far as the recorded, the audio stuff. Yeah. But as far as all these videos, come on, Bowie studied himself visually all the time. Do you think that guy didn't watch a film of his tour? There's no way he didn't. Yeah. So this means that there's probably full-on pro shot video of the Station to Station tour somewhere. This means <laughs> there is, we know that there is a partially filmed show from Japan that, uh, from this, the Heroes tour. Um, uh, it's been edited into around an eight-song television special aired in Japan. 
but they get all the way to the end of the show. So this means that they at least filmed and had to decide to turn off the cameras, which I don't think that they all did because that would have disrupted the the concert to yeah. contact every cameraman and say, don't film TVC 15. Uh-huh. No, I don't think that's what happened. All of these things have to exist because they exist in portions. Maybe they've been lost to the sands of time, but Bowie ain't that kind of cat. You saw that that um, uh, the David Bowie is exhibit. Yeah, he didn't throw anything away. No, he did not. But he also can't give everything away. No, he can't. <laughs> now, Mark, um, that reminds me that you you bore witness to perhaps one of the uh, most incredible David Bowie concerts of all time, and one that is not really mentioned because it is so abnormal a lot of people don't even know it, ex- it happened that's true um i actually um i want to preface this by saying when i learned about bowie's passing i was in another town setting up a show that i needed to do and we were like kind of building a stage out of nothing in the middle of nowhere literally in the middle of nowhere we were playing a show in the woods and i had to focus all of my efforts for 48 hours on this show I did not have time to grieve. And by the time I got home, a lot of the the people that had been grieving online and posting links had already gotten it out of their system. So I came home to this already being the reality. By mm. the time I could think about it, it, it was there and done, and some people had moved on within 24 hours. So I wrote this thing that I just published recently on my own personal Facebook page and my Tumblr page, all of which you can uh, be linked to if you go to markwithac.com. But uh, I'm going to read this verbatim because I'll probably leave something out unless I do it this way. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. I wanted to let a week or so pass before I talked about the passing of David Bowie. Like nearly anybody who fancies themselves an artistic type, I was heavily influenced by his work. But to simply say Bowie was an influence isn't at all fair to the reality of his impact on me. In the grand scheme of things, I'm merely a huge fan, plain and simple. I could go on and on about how his records made me feel less alone and whatnot, but there were plenty of other people far more qualified to tell that type of story. There's a tale I'd like to share with you instead. As a kid, I liked him, but it wasn't until the unfairly neglected Outside album came out in 1995 that I became completely hooked. Prior to that release, I'd heard his albums in drips and drabs, out of chronological order, and out of context. Outside was this fully formed but completely deconstructed album that tore my head off. Earthling followed a few years later, and I liked it nearly as much as Outside, but when I found out that David Bowie was coming to Florida, oh forget it, I was going. That was that. Admission was around $45. He was playing in Fort Lauderdale in a club that held around a thousand people. Tickets sold out immediately, but thankfully a second show was added, which was the one that I miraculously scored tickets for. But before I go any further, here's something that's getting a bit lost in the narrative about Sir Stardust. When I bragged to my friends around my age that I was going to see David Bowie in a club, if they even recognized his name, most were giggling and making fun of me, asking why I'd want to see some washed-up rock star at all. And it wasn't just one or two people, either. This happened repeatedly. In the Deep South, only the diehards were paying attention, and the last time most of the people in the Deep South had even noticed him was Labyrinth from a full decade earlier. He wasn't getting the MTV spins that he once did. His radio play had been relegated to the classic rock format, and he wasn't any sort of icon for disaffected youth anymore. At best, the people that I knew that listened to music of any interest at all knew him as the guy that Trent Reznor wouldn't shut up about. That's a true story. Anyways, back to my experience. My pal Dewey and I made the long drive to the southern reaches of Florida. If I remember correctly, Dewey wasn't all that familiar with him either. 
And when we entered the club, maybe 15 feet from the stage, we stood next to a mother with her daughter. Said daughter probably couldn't have been older than 13, and she really did not want to be there. Complained every waking second before the show started. I mean, the type of whining that makes you hate perfect strangers, you know? (laughs) You couldn't ignore it. Straight up scorning her mother publicly for dragging her to see this grandpa. The lights went down. Bowie steps on stage alone, armed with only a 12-string guitar. Crowd goes wild. But importantly, this young lady that was the bane of my existence just seconds prior started shrieking uncontrollably. And by the time he'd launched into a solo rendition of Dead Man Walking, she had tears streaming down her face and had clamped onto my arm with a death grip for balance because she was clearly on the verge of fainting. When the song was over, she yelled something to her mother along the lines of, Now I get it. Her behavior for the rest of the concert was not unlike what you've seen in films of how fans absolutely lost it when Elvis or the Beatles were physically in front of them. Complete hysteria, and he hadn't even sung yet. That is the Bowie effect. It was an honor to see him work his magic in such an intimate environment for nearly four hours as it was somehow the longest concert he'd ever given the entirety of his career. Nearly 40 songs, even building in breaks so people could go outside and put money in the parking meters so that their cars wouldn't be towed. One of the breaks was even just for certain band members to use um, the facilities. He said so from the stage. He was capable of rearranging the musical sensibilities of anyone that had the ears to hear it, reducing anyone in his presence to quivering piles of tears and being a consummate gentleman all at once. There will never be another Bowie, and if you really think about it, we didn't even deserve the one we got. So that's my story about David Bowie and the concert that I was lucky enough to see. And there were other times where he came to Florida and I didn't even break a sweat trying to get tickets because I went, nope, I saw the longest concert he ever gave. Almost all of my favorites were played. It's the most bizarre set list. He's like playing stuff like My Death. He's playing Always Crashing in the Same Car. He's play- He played half of Station to Station. He played V2 Schneider. Oh, man. It was <laughs> the show of all shows to see. I never needed anything else from Bowie. I never felt any entitlement after that. I just, everything else was icing. Man, and, and here's, here's, here's what always kills me every time you speak about this show. Not only is it, you know... a it sounds like a, a slice of heaven that I would like to have been privy to. It happened within walking distance of my home. <sighs> like I did not. I, what what year was that? It was, I believe, October eighth of nineteen ninety seven. I may be one day off on the okay. date because, you know, I come was. On, that was a long time ago for us who are getting up there in our years. I was in seventh grade. I probably at that at that age could have considered going if I had had the wherewithal to know such a thing was happening, though, if it was a school night, staying out that late, who knows? I, I doubt it. I don't know. That part I don't remember. Um, but I just, I can't, you know, I can't come to, to grips with the fact that it happened there. I could have gotten there of my own, on my own two legs. And it just, I had no idea. And it, it, it's amazing. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you experienced it. <laughs> and I'm so fucking jealous. <laughs> Well, I certainly don't mean it in a rub-it-in way, but there is good news about this, and that's that, one, there are stories that back up uh, what I've got to say. If you uh, 
find the archives of an old fan site called Teenage Wildlife. A lot of people that had were basically following Bowie all over for this club tour wrote their own experiences about it, and they knew that Bowie was apparently trying to record a live album, and they were trying to get safety takes of everything that they had on the tour. And the one song that the band had rehearsed that they didn't perform that night was I'm Deranged, but they captured it in, in soundcheck, along with apparently... And I would love to hear this, a country-western version of Scary Monsters. Um, that was their go-to what? soundcheck song because, <laughs> you know, they didn't want to be like, oh, we played this song already today. So uh, there's also a, um, we'll call it less than official recording of the show that was clearly recorded by someone's Walkman and they did not bring enough batteries because they hadn't. Nobody knew that it was going to be this long. When he walked on stage and said, so do you want the long show or the short show? We thought this was just how Bowie bantered, you know? Uh-huh. We had no idea that when we said the long show, went, okay, and performed <laughs> that we can count around 36 songs, but it was probably more. Everyone's recollections are hazy, but we, I've got a tape that is uh, about... The fir- it's got the first set, which was 16 songs, and then most of the second 10 songs, or the, the first 10 song encore. <laughs> so I've got at least that much to prove that he did say Reeves needs to use the bathroom, but we're not going anywhere. Um, I can prove a lot of it, <laughs> uh, but I, I cannot prove everything. And I, I'd say it's probably the most desirable Bowie bootleg this side of getting a pro shot Diamond Dogs show. So it's out there somewhere, be it audio recording or I suppose just audio recording, not video recording. I have not found a video. I would, uh, I do not endorse supporting bootleggers monetarily in any way. But if someone were to show up and say, I have that on video, open your wallet, Mark. I don't know that you could remind me that I don't support bootleggers (laughs) quick enough. (laughs) Yeah. So there's a chance we could see it someday. Uh, or hear it someday. Yeah, you know. he definitely. Uh, now, there's a chance that something went wrong with the recording equipment, and he didn't know that till he got off the stage. But he was definitely intending to release a live album of the Earthling tour, and this show was there for safety copies. So it was there for the taking, and it was multi-tracked. And yeah, fingers crossed because that would be that would be incredible. And also, there's his uh, joint tour with Nine Inch Nails of uh, a Nine Inch Nails set. A, a Bo- Nine Inch Nails and Bowie simultaneously set, and then a Bowie set, which is also a thing that could exist as a uh, a thing for sale in stores someday. It could, and it does exist, and some people have it, and uh, I, I don't want to say where it can be obtained, but I can say, if you'd like to hear an example of the recording, if you look for the episode that Cap and I did about the album Outside, you might find a hint of a recording of Bowie and uh, Trent Reznor doing a duet on the song Hurt from the recording we're referring to, but I can't confirm or deny that we have it. Yeah, that that would be impossible to really say for sure. Yes, but I can say if you poured through that three-hour outside episode, you might get the hint of the existence. <laughs> so, uh, at, you know, at, at this point, um, we said so much, and and... I'm not sure what, what, there's so much more that we could say. Um, let's just go album by album. How long you got? Oh, man. Okay, let's, let's do it. We've got, we've got maybe like five, ten minutes. All right, so there's this, uh, we got to start at the beginning. There's an audio recording of him with, uh, that was uh, done in a Make Your Own Record booth. 
I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I don't know the. (laughs) It would take so freaking long. And uh, I like eating and seeing my family. And we would be here for a week. He's had such an impact on us that there's no. uh, You and I would never shut up, especially if we got to a part of the career where we just completely disagreed on it. Mm hmm. Because we'd both be arguing our cases and we'd both have legs to stand on because we're studied. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Like say, uh, you know, I don't think ours is a highlight, though I don't think it's a bad album either. But say you thought it was the best and we're ready to argue it to the death. Forget it. I would like to meet that person. I don't know who they are. I've never met them. I can say my mom really liked the hours album. Oh, okay. Yeah, she she enjoys it. But, uh, you know, she stopped keeping up with pop culture a long time ago. So I don't know what that's worth. You remember how in ours there was a there was a lyrics contest and like someone won a lyrics contest and so one of the tracks on that record is like has lyrics by random dude. This is I may have noted at one time, but I'm searching the brain matter. I have no recollection of this. No. Yeah, it's it's the um, it's I can't remember the name of the song, but it, it's it's the one with the the lyric about um. I think clouds slowly sinking. Uh, oh well, whatever. I mean, the songs that I remember were obviously the the single that they really. What's tried really to push. happening? That's my least favorite song on the record. That it's would explain not, it. The lyrics are not by David Bowie. <laughs> that would explain it. <laughs> for me, I kind of uh, I look at the pretty things are going to hell, which is the next to last track on it as mm. the bonus track because it kills the vibe that the record had going. Yeah. I, I'm like, oh yeah, this is a good seven song album with a bonus track and something we don't talk about. <laughs> <laughs> With, with the the bonus track of the song that appeared on the soundtrack to Stigmata. <laughs> I got to ask, man, do you have a Bowie thing where you're like, you know, this is definably not good before we wrap it up? Because mm. it just sounds like we've been blowing him for, for however long here. Do you have a moment where you go, not your finest hour? There, there have been tracks where, especially when I was like coming into Bowie and like feeling, feeling it out, like always having my expectations of what I was, what the album I was about to listen to defied continually. Um, bad, bad. I'm, I don't love the first 10 machine album. I like parts of it, but, um, it, on that record, uh, Bowie and the band were consciously trying to do one take recordings. So like they were ad libbed tracks. Um, the, the, a lot of the lyrics were just like off the top of his head, which is cool that he got as far as he did. It's a hard thing to do. But um, if they just had a little bit more polish, it would have been great. There's like, uh, th- there's some parts where he's just trying to sound hard. Yeah, and Crack he, City is yeah, coming to mind with, immediately. With, with buttholes for their brains. Like, <laughs> no, but no, that's man. the album with I Can't Read, which is a great tra- yeah. a, a great track. Um, and one that he performed in 1997 at Fort Lauderdale, just miles from your house. Which is, uh, which is why I so much prefer the egregiously and mysteriously out of print Tin Machine 2, because they said, you know what, we fucked up. We really should have just given a couple <laughs> passes at least to the lyrics, and it's so much stronger for it. You know, that's, that, that really sums up your band when, when you guys have to have a meeting and say, all right, this time, what if we try to write songs? <laughs> they, they were so grunge, they weren't writing songs. I mean, that's pretty grunge. They were, the, they were so punk rock, they wouldn't play a note under any circumstances. That's an old Todd Snyder track. But uh, I can get behind that. For me, I can boil it down to songs, specific songs. Like, uh, I got no love for Dancing in the Street, the duet with Mick Jagger. Does that count? 
<laughs> I think it does because it's uh, it, the it, song gets covered so often mm. that people might mistake it for being good. It's never been a good song in the first place. So I don't know why David Bowie took it on with such a bastion of taste. I mean, even when he was getting covers wrong at the time, they were good songs. Like, uh, you know, he was taking uh, tracks that he'd done before with Iggy Pop. Mm-hmm. He was doing God Only Knows. Maybe it wasn't the best rendition of God Only Knows, but these were all quality songs. And at some point he went, fuck it, dancing in the street. It happens to every rock band at some point, And now it's my turn. I mean... And Real Cool World. I just don't get it. I just don't like it. Real Cool World is a ultimate B-side. It's one of the most B-side-y B-sides ever. It, as may not be a surprise to you, um, was on the soundtrack to Cool World. And I think Bowie said, all right, hmm, I don't have a lot of time to do this. (laughs) (laughs) What is it? It's a Real Cool World. Great. Super. (laughs) Um, And it's a dance track. I mean, it didn't really need good lyrics, but it also really didn't need to exist. It was sort of like, uh, you know, it had come out a few years after the album Never Let Me Down, which was a letdown to a lot of people, as we covered earlier. But when we all thought he had moved past that, Real Cool World drops out of the sky, and it's like, no, it sounds like a Never Let Me Down outtake. You've learned nothing. So... That th- yeah. those would probably be the be the two that I go. I actively dislike these, I, and I wish they did not exist. But that's a large discography, and for me to only be able to, off the top of my head, point to the song you mentioned from Hours, and those two <laughs> songs, that's impressive. Yeah, we should all be so lucky. He does. He does good work. What can we say? So <laughs> that that's it. That's his new slogan going forth. David Bowie, doing good work. <laughs> He's a black star. He is a black star. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's so, there's really like, we could continue to go down all the separate rabbit holes and so on. But, uh, you know, Bowie's influence, I've, I heard somebody say that, um, and I can't remember where, where I read this, but the world we live in is, a, is the world that he created, you know, like as a major influencing force of pop culture, even, even after he, fell out of notoriety in the 90s it became so clear when he resurged he resurged so hard and everybody's like you know everybody either remembered or or was newly inspired by him uh the influence map of bowie and how far reaching he was is is pretty extensive and uh and i think that's it's a it's a pretty true statement it's it's a pretty bold and sweeping statement but a but a true one nonetheless and even his detractors and there are some there are those who try to uh, point to bowie as a cultural vampire who would hang around people long enough to sort of get the inspiration he needed uh, and then run off and do something artsy with it Mm -hmm. for uh as much as you could probably point to the character of ziggy stardust and say well this is really a mixture of the legendary stardust cowboy and vince taylor i think that was his name the uh the 50s rocker who thought he was jesus christ (laughs) um I'm apologies if I've gotten the name wrong. I'm just trying to pull this off the top of my head. Um, that was also two years after he was the first rock star who one wasn't gay, who came out and said, I'm gay just to say it. And the amount of doors of acceptance that that one two word sentence opened cannot be overstated. Yeah. I mean, somebody else would have said it later, but he was the one to do it. All, you could argue that everything he did was there for the taking. He was the guy smart enough to take it. And if you watch the outside press conference from 1995, he points out a very interesting thing that I think sums him up better than anything else. He says, you know, I'm not a great writer, and I don't write a lot, 
what I do is I make great choices. <laughs> I mean, he, he was a guy who really favored spontaneity, not necessarily the spontaneity that, that existed on the first 10 Machine record, but the, the various uh, cut-up writing styles that were you know championed by William Burroughs and then also utilized by Brian Eno um, that Bowie then took to heart and continued to do for the rest of his career. Like he, he liked taking all the things that inspired him and splicing them up and seeing what, what conclusions of his own he could jump to. Sure, and none of us, none of us are true originals. Yeah. Anybody looking at a cell phone and using that to compose, it, you know, it, it all comes from somewhere. Bowie just didn't hide it. But it looked completely new when he showed it to you. <laughs> yes. Like, where did that come from? Not realizing, wait, so a light bulb had to go off at some point. <laughs> he, he had to see something that spurred that knowledge or that idea or the art. So we're going we're gonna to close it out here. We're going to put a pin in this. And if you have any Bowie thoughts uh, based on any discussions we've had or memories of your own share, please do uh, either comment on the episode's page or we can start a discussion in the Nerdy Show forums. Uh, before we go, um, Mark, we, we actually didn't talk at all about uh, what's, the, what's the latest with you. You're, you're a performer. If you're not familiar, Mark goes by the name Mark with a C. That's his nom de plume of musicianship. Yeah, I've uh, been taking a break from all that, and I've mostly been just being a dick to fish. Like, I, I watched this Blackfish documentary, and I went, is that all you got, SeaWorld? So I just started going to the tanks and punching them. Um, you know, just punching dolphins, punching sting. No, um, I, <laughs> that is completely <laughs> false. As a matter of fact, just last week I was daydreaming that I, uh, won the Powerball, uh, that everybody, everybody was so obsessed with. Uh, I knew though that I wasn't going to win cause I didn't buy a ticket <laughs> and I, uh, I, I was fantasizing like if I won, what would I do? If I won all the money, I would just go buy SeaWorld and go, no, go home. Everybody. <laughs> everybody go home let someone um rehabilitate these fish and you that's it that's all i'm gonna do so now nobody's calling me nobody's saying mark can i have money no i just bought SeaWorld with it and then didn't do anything with it i just <laughs> closed it i'm gonna be the first person in lottery history to do something great for someone who can't thank me but anyways i didn't do that Instead, I made a record called Unicorns Get More Bacon, and the pre-order is live now, and you can find information about that on my Facebook page or markwithac.com. Or Just... linked on this episode's page. Oh, hey, thanks for doing that. No uh, problem. Beyond that, uh, like I said, I was uh, away performing a show when I'd heard the news about Bowie, but I had a couple days off uh, right afterwards from the Tuesday to, I think, the Saturday. I wasn't playing any shows, and the next show back, I decided... I wanted to play a Bowie tune, and I, I could get very obscure with what I would perform live, but it didn't really seem to call for that. I wanted to play something that if people wanted to sing along with, they could. So for my birthday show, which was done in a very small place called Sleeping Moon Cafe, I dusted off a song that I recorded on my very first demo when I was uh, 15 years old, mm. and it was the first time I'd ever actually played it on stage, a, a cover of Bowie's Space Oddity, and uh, some people... Felt really good about it, and I was surprised at the amount of people who didn't know the words. But the best part was that everyone knows Ground Control to Major Tom. And if you can write a song that everybody in a room knows one line from, that's still better than most of us will ever do. <laughs> I happen to have a recording uh, from the board, and you can also hear people washing dishes in the back because it's so. Th this place was so incredibly small and packed that... I couldn't help but have a microphone kind of pointing at the kitchen. So... Uh, 
I brought it here to share with you if you'd like to hear me singing a Bowie song to say thanks. Awesome. Well, that's what we're going to do. We're going to listen to Mark's very recent performance of Space Oddity live. And thank you so much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this strange odyssey through the life and times of David Bowie and, and also Mark and I. Um, and uh, it's got personal. Yeah. The, the journey, the journey, it's not over yet. Not even, not, not by a long shot. I feel like I owe you money for a therapy session now. <laughs> no, I wasn't a mutual. I think it was mutual. We'll trade the money. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, thank, thank you so much for listening. Remember, if you enjoyed Nerdy Show's programming, this show or any of the shows on the Nerdy Show Network, just head to nerdyshow.com slash support where you can learn how to buy stuff on Amazon and inadvertently also give us money. Um, <laughs> to pay for more therapy, of course. Yeah, do a one-time donation or subscribe to us on Patreon and get all kinds of extra perks. So uh, that said, thank you so much for listening. Bye, I'm Cap. Bye, I'm Mark with a C. And here is Space Oddity. Ground control to Major Tom. Take your protein pills and put your helmet on Ground control to Major Tom Commencing countdown engines on Ignition and may God's love be with you. One, two, three, four. This is ground control to Major Tom. You've really made a grade. And the papers want to know whose shirt you wear. Now it's time.
listening to nerdy show if you like what you heard please rate and review us on itunes or like and follow us on soundcloud as listener supported entertainment we rely on you to keep this and other shows on the nerdy show network alive by telling a friend or funding the network via patreon any contribution gets you exclusive outtakes episodes and images from across the network and there's even more perks available just head to patreon.com slash nerdy show to find out how you or your company can underwrite this or other Nerdy Show programming, visit nerdyshow.com sponsorships. You can also subscribe to us via iTunes and SoundCloud. Leave a comment, like and share, and follow Nerdy Show on all of your favorite social networks. For more podcasts, articles, community forums, and other awesomeness, visit nerdyshow.com. If it's geeky, we've got it covered. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 